Are they expecting us to call now? Yeah. Okay. I want to catch them. Hello. Hey, Chris. Yes. Yeah, it's Paul Spataro. How you doing? Oh, Paul. How are you? Good. Uh, we got Chris Honeywell ho- hosting the call for us here, but he's going to disappear uh, for, from us hello. in a minute. He's going to pull Adam in now. There, there it goes. goes. Hello. Here we go. Hey, Adam. Is this Paul? Yep. And we got uh, Hi, we got Chris on the line with us too. Adam, how are you, brother? Hello, Chris. It, uh, this is the first All time right. I'm ever doing this with anybody on the phone, so you guys got to bear with me a little. Back to the bin. Hey everybody and welcome to Back to the Bins. I'm Paul Spitaro and today I am not joined by Scott Gardner. I am not joined by Bill Robinson, but of course, as always, I will have the Bill Robinson LMD here. Say hello, Bill. I don't, I don't care about embarrassing myself. I do that all the time. Today I have two special guests from Comic Geek Speak. And if you're not familiar with Comic Geek Speak, I don't know how come you're listening to this because I don't think anybody who listens to comic podcasts could possibly be ignorant of that show. Uh, personally, I think that is the first comic podcast that I ever listened to, and that was got, it's got to be seven years ago. And today I have with me Adam Murdo. Hello, hello. <laughs> and Chris Everly. Paul, thanks for having me on. I'm looking, looking forward to it. Yeah, it's, I'm, I'm really glad you guys were able to come on with me. Uh, like I said, I, I really enjoy your show. And uh, I've been looking forward to having a chance to just get a chance to chat with you guys. Uh, you know, the only the only time, as as we were talking about, the only time I've had a chance face to face is at New York Comic Con. Adam and I have met a couple of times, but things are so hectic there that it's you know it's a quick couple of minutes, and then you know, take care. I'll see you next year. Yep. But, carried away by the crushing current of people. <laughs> yeah, at some point you just uh, you're talking and and you're, you're gone. Although this year, the last, is it the last two years or just this year that the, no, the last two years that Artist Alley uh, is in a really good spot. And this year they had you guys in Artist Alley. Is that where you were last year? Last year? Oh, uh, yes. Yeah, well, okay. yeah. Oh, well, yeah, yeah. This past year we were in Artist Alley. The year before that we were to the far, I think, north end of the building. I remember seeing you there, Paul. Yeah. And then you came to see us in Artist Alley this year. Yes, yes, and in an artist alley, it's got to be just so much more comfortable because there's not that same torrent of people. Uh, you know, although you know, I guess if you're behind the counter, it's still not quite as crazy. But artist alley just seems, you know, even even the lack of people just makes the temperature more comfortable. And and mm-hmm. it, and when you walk away from your own booth, I think I would imagine there's more things that you're interested in in that area anyway. Absolutely. That feels well, I'm, like a, I'm, a genuine I'm forward, I'm sorry. I'm not looking forward okay. to this year because uh, or, because uh, it's my first year as like an official geek, so I'm really going to be honored to be uh, part of the, uh, the CGS uh, display. So, yeah, well, let me let me uh, let me start with with you, Chris. Uh, uh, 
I, I don't know how, you know, the people listening, I don't know how well they're going to know everything, but you own Wild Pig Comics, right? Yep. Uh, I own Wild Pig Comics uh, back in 1999. And uh, we've gone through various trials and tribulations at different locations. Our first story was destroyed in the flood. Um, we temporarily closed in 2010 and switched over to doing common conventions under the Wild Pig name, and we reopened in uh, 2012, and this year we're celebrating our 15th year as a as a retailer. And um, I've known the CGS guy since like 2006, and they've become uh, near and dear friends of mine over the years. And I've made many contributions to the show over the years, and I was honored to be made a, uh, near the end of last year. Yeah, I, so I, I, I'm living. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry. I was going to say no, I, 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 I've, I've living... enjoyed your contribution to the show. When you were just a guest on it, and then uh, you know it, it was a loss for you guys to lose pants from the show as a as a regular, but then adding you on as a regular, it, it, it's almost a wash. Uh, I appreciate that, but pants to me is, is deeply missed. Well, it's <laughs> it's not the same. Pants isn't there. It's not the it, same. I'm I'm not I'm not. But, you know, um, it's a different personality. It's a different person, yeah. and and you know, all things considered equal, I don't know if you want it to be exactly the same. You know, you're not you're not there to be an imitation of him. You're you're your own person, uh, and you bring your own oh, personality to the show, your own knowledge and everything. And I think you know, you you lost an asset on the show, and you gained an asset. It's not the same, but it's you know, it it, it becomes a wash in its own way. That's very kind. I appreciate that. Um, it's well, you know, it, I've been living and reading comics since I could read, you know, as a child. And uh, being part of the show is—it's is, really like a. It, before I realized it, it, was, it was a dream come true. Before I even knew about podcasting, you know, I, I really found my place with with guys I, you know, I love and respect, where I can really, we can all just talk about you know this hobby that we love so passionately. So that's it's 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 a real honor and a delight to be part of that. Yeah, sometimes you know we talk about podcasting in general, and uh, I find that the the biggest key, more than knowledge, more than being well spoken, more than anything else, is passion. If you have passion for the subject matter, it comes through and it becomes entertaining for people to listen to. And if it's a subject that you're lukewarm about, nobody's going to ever want to listen to it. I don't care how well spoken you are. You're here, sir. I concur wholeheartedly. And then uh, my friend Adam. Not only is he on Comic Geek Speak, but he occasionally, and I put that almost in quotes, occasionally does Merd's Time Bubble, which I enjoy very much, and has its own similarities to this show because it has that random comic nature of yesteryear. Uh, any intent to do any episodes in the near future on that one, or is that kind of on, on hiatus? No, it, it's still in the pipeline. It's just that uh, there is a, yet another uh, member of the Comic Geek Speak family of podcasts that I've been neglecting even worse than, than the time bubble lately, and that is the Crisis Tapes, which is a, a spin-off of Comic Geek Speak that's focused specifically on crisis on this earth and uh, its uh, various attendant texts. And I am uh, preparing an episode of that for release sometime in the very near future. And once that has been completed, I can once again turn my attention back to the time bubble, doing those uh, random uh, back issue spotlights that you mentioned and uh, that you also specialize in uh, here at uh, Back to the Bins. Now, if if uh, somebody is listening and they're not and they don't know 
you from your show, uh, you do have kind of a special knowledge of the crisis beyond the average person. Uh, would that be fair to say? It, it, I think so, yeah. It was the subject of my uh, Master of Arts thesis. So I, I spent a couple of years of my life uh, thinking long and hard about that 12-issue uh, maxi series. So I don't think I would be... Uh, um, well, bo- um, being too boastful if I said I were one of the uh, more knowledgeable people about crisis. No, I, I don't uh, think you're being boastful at all. I think that's just the reality of it. Brother, you're being too modest. You're clearly one of the foremost experts. Yes, I, I, I would agree. And that, now, originally you were doing that with Peter, right? Uh, yes, that's right. Uh, our uh, erstwhile co-host, Peter Rios, who is... Uh, uh, formerly the producer of Comic Geek Speak, uh, he's also a full-time uh, dancer, choreographer, and an instructor at uh, the Philadelphia College of Arts. And uh, he uh, left the show a couple of years ago to focus on that. So uh, since then, I have been uh, so whacked on the crisis tapes, more is the pity. Uh, I, I miss his input, I miss the, the interplay between the two of us. That uh, podcast was never really meant to be a one-man operation, but uh, it is what it is, and I'm trying to carry on as best I can without it. Yeah, before before you guys came on, I was talking to Chris Honeywell, and we were talking about the ins and outs of solo podcasting as opposed to podcasting with people. And I, for one, have tried to put together a couple of solo episodes and found them, in my own opinion, to be dismal failures, and they've never made their way onto iTunes. Uh, I find having other people to talk to makes it much easier for me. To, to get a gauge on whether what I'm saying makes sense, whether what I'm saying is entertaining at all. Uh, so to do a show by yourself, Crisis Tapes and Murd's Time Bubble, uh, very, very difficult endeavor. So I tip my hat to you. Well, thanks very much. It can be a little bit nerve-wracking. Well, as you say, it is difficult sometimes to tell whether what I'm saying is making sense or engaging in any way. But I just, I just kind of take it on faith, and the listeners keep telling me, you know, just... Babble into that microphone for as long as you want, Murd. We we enjoy what you're doing, so I I have to deduce from that I'm doing something right. Yeah, no, I've like I said, I've I've listened to the Crisis tapes and I've listened to the Time Bubble, and I enjoy them. So I recommend them to anybody who's listening here today to seek them out if you don't know them already. Thanks very much for the plug, Paul. Oh, my pleasure, absolutely. So, like I was saying earlier, though. Uh, Unfortunately, I was going to bring an independent book with me today, but my partner Bill told me he was going to bring it, and then he didn't show up. Instead, he sent over his uh, LMD, and the LMD didn't bring a book. So all we have today is a Marvel and a DC that you guys chose, uh, and I'm kind of embarrassed as the regular on the show to not have a book, but so be it. It it is what it is. (laughs) No, I'm on. No sweat. You guys, uh, <laughs> do you guys have any preference as to who goes first? I, I bow to my esteemed uh, colleague and, and dear comrade in arms. I think I think Adam should should trailblaze here. All right, I respectfully return your bow, and uh, I guess I'll, I'll take it from there. Because uh, well, honestly, I think the comic I chose is a little less meat than the one you chose. So, <laughs> you know, as as we get into this, anybody listening is gonna make their own judgment on that, but I think uh, that's a, a, almost an understatement. Well, just 
anyone who's ever listened to, to Chris, you know, rhapsodize about uh, Christopher Prince's Black Panther uh, understands. You, know, you, you mentioned passion as an important component of broadcasting, Paul. Uh, you, you get it in buckets once Chris starts talking. I, I will try to uh, moderate my enthusiasm. Like my kids are asleep, I don't want to wake them up, so I won't. Uh, I won't drag them up and down or anything. But <laughs> all right, I, I will bring the passion. Yes. All right. So for uh, my uh, DC comic selection here on Back the Bins, I. Uh, uh, I had to put on my thinking cap uh, only momentarily to decide what uh, my selection would be. And uh, I just thought about one of my all-time favorite DC Comics series, uh, one that I haven't had an opportunity to talk about on Merge Time Ball. Um, it's kind of a Bronze Age novelty, and I am a big fan of Bronze Age novelties over here. Uh, it's the Joker solo series that uh, DC Comics published in the it lasted for only nine issues, published on a uh, bi-monthly basis. Um, and I decided I would uh, select issue number six of that series to talk about tonight um, because it is kind of a, an interesting uh, celebrity encounter in the comics history here. Um, it's uh, the Joker meets Sherlock Holmes, uh, kind of. Uh, it was um, I decided to do that because what was, uh, the, the season premiere of Sherlock happening just a couple of Sundays ago, and Sherlock Holmes is kind of timely. Um, and uh, it's well. I mean, I, I could have talked about a number of other issues. I mean, there was the issue where Joker meets Luthor. There was the issue where well, there was the first issue of the series, of course. Um, but I, I decided to pick this one because of the interesting well, clash of the uh, archetypes uh, involved. Okay, well, first of all, let, let me give the uh, creative team here. Uh, it was written by uh, the uh, seminal bat scribe Daniel Neal. Uh, the pencils were by 1970 DC Comics mainstay Irv Novick, uh, with inks by Tex Blaisdell. And I'm pretty sure that the cover was drawn by Ernie Chan. Uh, I noticed there's a little uh, EC signature at the bottom of the front cover. And, uh, and I know he'd done some work on the Joker series at some point, so he seems like the uh, logical uh, assumption to make that he was the artist of that cover. All right, so... We have Sherlock Holmes going up against the Joker. The front cover has the two of them on either side of a prison door, each of them turning a key and exclaiming, Aha! You're my prisoner at last! And the caption reads, Who has trapped whom in this battle between the master sleuth and the clown of crime? That scene, of course, does not actually take place in the comic. Since this is Bronze Age DC, that happened fairly often. Um, and inside, uh, the story begins uh, in a small small town uh, several hundred miles from Gotham City, where a uh, production of a uh, Sherlock Holmes-based play is being rehearsed. Um, enter the Joker, disguised significantly as Professor Moriarty. He gets the drop on the actor playing Sherlock Holmes, one Clive Siderson, and uh, inflicts not one but two severe head traumas to poor Mr. Siderson uh, <laughs> for uh, stealing one of the props uh, from the set and uh, exiting stage left. Uh, then... Uh, Clive Siderson, recovering from these severe blows of the noggin, uh, suddenly assumes uh, the persona of Sherlock Holmes in a much more all-consumingly. He goes total method on Sherlock Holmes here. Actually, it, it, it's kind of ambiguous to what extent he believes himself to be Sherlock Holmes, but he he's uh, submerged himself so much in the role that uh, uh, the owner of the theater and the stage manager are, are showing signs of concern, and they dispatch a stagehand to follow him around as he uh, sets off in pursuit of the Joker to make sure that he doesn't hurt himself somehow. 
It just so happened that the stagehand's name is Watson. And uh, the, Mr. Siderson, as Sherlock Holmes deduces on the spot, uh, judging by his uh, rolling gait and uh, his uh, rough hands, that he must have uh, worked as a sailor at some point. And uh, Watson admits that he used to work as a longshoreman on the Gotham docks, and his nickname was, Holmes interrupts him and says, Elementary, you are Doc Watson. <laughs> Not too and much of a so stretch. Sherlock Holmes. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but what's a Joker comic without a few bad puns, you know? So, <laughs> and the rest of the uh, the story is uh, this kind of a cat and mouse between uh, quote unquote Sherlock Holmes and his partner Doc Watson and the Joker and his men. See, the Joker has decided to out of the clear blue sky on a whim. Whimsical like that. He's decided that because he, quote, this is a, a key quote here on page five, he has a burning need to humiliate, harass, humble, and put egg on the face of all detectives, he, he's just decided that Sherlock Holmes should be his next target. Uh, another quote, alas, Sherlock Holmes is beyond my reach for the very risky reason that he isn't real, and I am. Wink, wink. So, the Joker has decided that he is going to recreate a whole bunch of Sherlock Holmes cases based on actual uh, Arthur Conan Doyle, Doyle stories. Uh, only in his version, the criminals will win. So, uh, Sherlock Holmes, or uh, Clive Siderson, believing himself to be Sherlock Holmes, sets out to thwart the Joker as often as possible. Um, he, uh, he, he, he seems to have... He's fairly successful in his attempts to thwart the Joker here, but uh, he seems to do so almost by accident most of the time. He, he's... At every step, he seems to misapprehend the Joker's true motives and the nature of the crimes that uh, the Joker has planned based on uh, Sherlock Holmes' stories. Uh, for example, uh, they, they, uh, Holmes and Watson head to a local golf course uh, to protect uh, a red-headed man who has just been appointed uh, president of a local air hockey league, uh, <laughs> thinking that the Joker's next crime is going to be upon on the red-headed league. But it turns out the Joker, the Joker does, in fact, show up at that same golf course, but he's just there to steal the pennant from the fourth hole, um, the, the crime being based on the early Sherlock Holmes novel, uh, The Sign of the Four. So uh, just a side person as Holmes seems to succeed against the Joker by instinct, sheer intuition, more than by any actual uh, skill as a detective. Uh, the same thing happens in the second act of the book. Um, uh, Siderson slash Holmes thinks the Joker is about to pull a heist based on the, the story, the Bruce Partington plans, but it turns out that he's actually pulling one based on the Hound of the Baskervilles. It just so happens that uh, both crimes, uh, the one Holmes think that thinks the Joker is pulling and the one he actually is pulling, uh, are happening at the same place. Uh, so they cross swords a couple of times here, uh, figuratively speaking, and... Uh, and ultimately, uh, Holmes uh, comes out on top. The Joker is uh, laid low and uh, knocked unconscious on a garbage scow. Uh, it's <laughs> not an awful lot of uh, graphic violence here. This is the mid-70s we're talking about, and uh, it's one of the, the, the lighter Joker yarns of the, the past several years, I have to say. But the Joker almost reverts to his old uh, Silver Age uh, personality when he was more the harmless buffoon as opposed to the uh, homicidal maniac. Um, and so he's just uh, playing these uh, Holmes-based crimes, stealing these worthless little trinkets, uh, just, well, it's, it's trying to attempting to score moral victories, uh, according to the Joker's uh, twisted ethos. You know, he's, he's striking blows against rationality and deduction as opposed to actually uh, doing anything that's going to profit himself as a criminal. 
And uh, meanwhile, this uh, this hapless actor, I mean, it's, he gets to step into the role of Holmes in a very, very real sense. In a way, he's almost more possessed by the archetype of Holmes. Uh, he assumes the, the, the rank and status of Holmes as opposed to just playing him. Uh, it, it, it's kind of peculiar. He's, I mean, this, this whole thing at base, I mean, let's level here. This, it, the whole point of this story is to, to give Denny O'Neill an excuse to mail a love letter to Sir Arthur Conan Doyle and to Sherlock Holmes, uh, a body of literature for which he clearly has a great personal love. Um, but the, the way he goes about introducing Sherlock Holmes, into the, or a version of Sherlock Holmes, into the present day of 1975 Gotham City so that he and the Joker can encounter one another. Uh, instead of uh, introducing some kind of time travel gimmick or something, he has an actor almost become possessed by the spirit or the archetype of... Sure. Kind of unintentionally, I have to assume, on uh, Mr. O'Neill's part. It, it lays bare... Well, the way in which comic book characters focus as, uh, as vehicles for old mythological archetypes. Uh, you know, I, uh, I mentioned I did my master's thesis on Crisis on Infinite Earths. Well, when I was an undergrad at Penn State, I had to write an honors thesis there, too. And that was all about uh, the mythological archetype of the trickster and the various ways it manifests itself in American superhero comics. And needless to say, I got uh, several pages out of the Joker. Mm. And I only wish I had had access to this copy of... Of this issue, Joker number six, um, because I'm sure I could have squeezed at least a good paragraph out of it. The way uh, the Joker feels, uh, uh, quote again, a burning need to humiliate, harass, humble, and put egg on the face of all detectives. Meanwhile, here's uh, Sherlock Holmes, who uh, emerges almost as uh, the nature universe. The DC universe seems to have sensed a need to introduce a corresponding archetype of order and rationality and deduction uh, to uh, counterbalance you know, the random, colorful, chaotic whims of the Joker. Usually Batman fills that role, but I'm happy to say that uh, the Batman is, uh, does not appear in this story anywhere and is not even mentioned. Is, so is Batman even in this series? I'm trying to remember him actually uh, appearing in the series. I'm not sure he does. I, think I want to say no, but I'm not positive on that. In the first issue, I think, but uh, for the most part, he is nowhere to be found for the rest of the series, which is one of the reasons why I love it so much, because it gives the, the villain a chance to shine. Uh, yeah, th this is, those. to my knowledge, is the first ever villain comic. Well, it's, it's, yeah, it's the first ever uh, villain protagonized uh, solo series, yeah. And if my memory um, is correct, the editorial mandate on this was that he could never win. And I don't believe he ever did. Well, and except that, when he was that, going that would make sense for the Bronze Age, for sure. Yeah. Well, the, many of the issues that featured him going up against other supervillains. So I guess it was okay for him to get the upper hand uh, in those situations. But yeah, if uh, any time he uh, co-starred with an actual hero, uh, for example, Green Arrow and Black Canary were the... Uh, the guest stars in issue number four. I'm tempted four, to say four on that, yes. Yeah. Um, so in that case, uh, yeah, the Joker had to take the fall. But um, yeah, I think but... if he's going up against other villains, you know, all things uh, that are both equally um, morally repugnant, it doesn't really matter which one comes out on top. Yeah, I know he I'm faced Luthor sure he would... in it. Uh, he also faced the Royal Flush Gang in one issue. Right. Uh, I know there was an issue with the Creeper. That was number three. 
But uh, I, yeah, the Luthor one is number seven. I'm, I'm almost positive about that. Yeah, I think you're right. But I, 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 I tip my hat to you. Uh, to, to take this Bronze Age simple story and to be coming up with the subtext uh, of, of the DC universe feeling the need for Sherlock Holmes, uh, it, it, it's insightful, and, and, I, and I give you credit because I hadn't even thought of it that way. Uh, I just found, I, I took it more on the surface of just as an entertaining story, but uh, I, I really like your, uh, your analysis of that. Thank you very much, Paul. Like and for any of you, uh, thank you too. <laughs> and for any of you out there who have not uh, read uh, this issue or any of the other issues of the uh, excellent mid '70s Joker series, well, they are, as Paul said, just just fun stories, and uh, stories in which uh, the baddie gets uh, to well sometimes come out on top. And they have all been traded just uh, within this past year in a, a trade just, paperback. I- let me, I mean, may I add to that, my friend, that that just came out just within the past few weeks. So that is that is readily available. Mm-hmm. I saw a copy of the trade on the shelves at Wild Pig Comics just a couple of weeks ago. And if Thanks you like plug, if you like Bronze Age stories, I would absolutely recommend picking this one up. Uh, Bronze slash Silver Age. Uh, and and you, you mentioned also how, uh, you know, he has kind of the Silver Age motivations but if you think about it, it's also a very similar motivation to 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 the Joker in the movie The Dark Knight, where basically his motivation was just to shake up things and to not allow order to dominate the day, to add chaos to to the world. Oh yes, not quite as much gritty moral complexity in The Joker Number Six, though. No, but it is the same. It it, it is the same. The character is the same. In, in its own way. Uh, I, I, I like this Sherlock Holmes. I almost kind of wish it had been a little bit more ambiguous instead of having him be an actor, just have a guy out there as Sherlock Holmes and have have the perspective that they didn't know if it was the real Sherlock Holmes or if it's just some nut. <laughs> you know, just keep it very ambiguous. In this case... Mm-hmm. You know, they they make it clear that he is a stage actor who was portraying Sherlock Holmes, uh, but it, it it also seems that all of a sudden, you know, he gets bonked on the head twice, uh, and his cognitive ability has increased to a dramatic effect, which I'm not sure that that really works any more than radioactivity gives you superpowers. Well, yeah, yeah. Well, well that's the thing, though. But in the story, as I said, he doesn't quite uh, deduced the Joker's motives correctly at any point. He seems to be acting more on instinct than on any real you know, cogitational skill. Uh, so yeah, there's, there's a bit of ambiguity for you. But yeah, I, I, you've kind of intrigued me there with the, the, the possibility of uh, well, the, the alternative uh, narrative device of a mysterious uh, Sherlock Holmes showing up out of no place you know, and, and uh, nobody being entirely sure who he is, where he came from, how legitimate his claims to Holmes dumb really are. So yeah, it's, that would have been a good way to go too, Paul. I agree. Now you, you don't Adam, know. What's your, what's, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Apologies. Go ahead, Krista. No, my question for both of you: what is what is your guys' overall take on that series? I mean, it's a very short series, but it's a series that definitely is remembered, especially just because it's so idiosyncratic. And what what do you guys what do you guys take from the series just overall? You want to go first, Adam? Mm, oh, okay. Well, it's 
It's it's hard to generalize since uh, well, as happened with so many uh, Bronze Age series, uh, especially from DC, they had a hard time keeping a consistent creative vision uh, in place on it because they kept uh, well just passing off the various series to different writers every other issue. In the case of the Joker, uh, Denny O'Neill wrote the first three issues. Um, then uh, Elliot S. Magan wrote one, then Marty Pasco wrote one, then Denny O'Neill came back for one issue, and then Elliot S. Magan came back for three more issues. So it was, it was kind of a... They, they were playing writer roulette. Um, so, but but you know, in the case of a series starring the Joker, you know, who is uh, crazy and irrational and uh, you know, moves from mood to mood and from identity to identity, almost like, like one moment he'll be like a harmless buffoon playing practical jokes and stealing useless objects, the next he'll be killing large numbers of people with deadly neurotoxins. So it, it's, it, it kind of fit that uh, the, 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 it was a little schizophrenic in tone, the comic. Um, so it's, it's, and, and each story was uh, self-contained. There were a couple of subplots, believe it or not. Uh, there were a couple of uh, recurring fall guys, uh, just hapless orderlies at Arkham Asylum. Their names were Benny Kiss and Marvin Fargo, who were assigned <laughs> to uh, try and keep track of the Joker and keep him from constantly escaping from Arkham, which he did every issue, of course. Um, so the, the, there was some little bit of this, some consistent threads running through the series, but for the most part, it was just the Joker doing a different crazy thing with a different crazy guest star in every issue. Um, so yeah, it's kind of like a little. I think of it as like a really delicious uh, box of chocolates. You know, it, it's, it's a variety pack, and each issue is a slightly different flavor. But they're all good, and they're all you know, just bizarre and. As a series from DC in the 70s, and particularly one starring the clown prince of crime, should be. Yeah, Over well, to you, Paul. Well said. I can't disagree with any any point that you made in that one. Uh, what I would add to it is that I was actually collecting comics by the time this came out, being uh, an old man of comics. Uh, <laughs> I I remember this as it came out, and I and I liked it at the time, and I still to this day have a fondness for it. Uh, I was I was thinking about the whole uh, Sil Silver Age slash Bronze Age breakdown. Uh, one of the shows on the Two True Freaks podcast network is uh, Hey Kids Comics. Uh, Andy Leyland uh, and his son actually go through various topics. And what they did recently was they were comparing Marvel Silver Age, Silver Age to DC Silver Age. And they were picking two books and pitting them up against each other. And it got me thinking about the whole silver age and, and bronze age and it was like dc was a pioneer bringing ushering in the silver age but then they seemed to get locked into it and didn't really get to the bronze age until way later than marvel did uh and at this point in the in the mid 70s where where marvel already had the new younger breed of writer coming in and changing things and basically stepping into the bronze age this is still a very Silver Agey book and has those, those type of uh, dynamics and those type of uh, values to it and everything. Uh, it's not looking to present a deep story, although, uh, again, I tip my hat to you for finding some complexity in it. Uh, it, it it's, it's just a fun book and it was a fun series. I didn't think DC really stepped wholeheartedly into the Bronze Age until around the time when uh, Perez and Wolfman were doing the Teen Titans and uh, Keith Giffen was on uh, 
on uh, Legion with Paul Levitz. That that seemed to be when they were really jumping in, and and then they ushered in the the modern age effectively with Crisis. Uh, but but like I said, they seem to be locked into the Silver Age for a long time, and this this is almost a, a, a real clear example of it. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I think I agree with you. I mean, there are there are exceptions. We have to think of the Denny Nunez Adams Green Lantern, Green Arrow, uh, Road stories. Yes, I do agree um, that th- there are exceptions of that nature. Yeah, uh, you know, the, even the, the Denny O'Neill Neil Adams Razel Ghoul stories, which would, yeah. which would predate this. I also think like this series, if I remember correctly, and, and Murd, please correct me if I'm wrong because you're more knowledgeable about this than I am. I think this is pre the DC implosion of the late seventies. Oh, yeah, where they canceled a lot of titles. And I, what I love about this period is, it, and I agree with you, Paul, about the general tone of the books, but in addition to that, DC was clearly trying a lot of different things and printing a large number of titles. A lot of them very idiosyncratic, like the Joker. Uh, I, can, I can think of like the Hercules title they did. Um, There's some other sword and sorcery type stuff. You know, there, there's a wide variety of things they were doing. Uh, and a lot of it was just, you know, good, wholesome, goofy fun. So. And, and and there's nothing wrong with that. I, I don't mean to say it as a pejorative oh, thing. Uh, I I love the Silver Age. I enjoy those books. When when this was coming out, I was more locked into Marvel because at that time I was really enjoying their Bronze Age type storytelling more. But you know, you get older and you you gain some hindsight on things. And to me, it's not that one is better than the other. It's just the two different types of storytelling. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Did uh did DC also have a Sherlock Holmes series around that time? Do either of you remember? There was a Sherlock Holmes book because I can vividly, I vividly recall seeing it at various times over the years in my bargain bins. I don't remember if it was a multi-part series or a single issue. Murd, do you have any idea on that? Or I do not know one way or the other. Actually, okay. Paul, you're I, I right. I can I can visualize the book. Yeah, I vaguely remember it, and I, and if my memory is at all accurate, and it may not be, I remember the art style and the character model being right on with this. That sounds about right. And I, I unfortunately don't have my Overstreet Guide uh, handy at the moment, but I'm, I'm almost looking positive. at mine right now. Oh, excellent. Uh, I'm almost positive they did have a book, but it, it was probably like many of these titles they tried that only had a very brief run, essentially, like The Joker, for example. Yeah, I'm I'm thinking maybe three issues. Um, if I'm reading this correctly, uh, let's see, from National Periodical Publications, a.k.a. DC, uh, they published one issue of a Sherlock Holmes series, also see the Joker, there's a cross-reference there, uh, September-October 1975, which is actually uh, well, prior to the release of this issue of the Joker I was talking about. Um, uh, Cruz provided the artwork, and uh, Walt Simonson drew the cover. Hmm. All right. I'd like to. St- I would. I would like to, to get a get to get a good look at that one. But I guess my memory is wrong in that it was. And and you were right on the money. It was just one issue. I mean, there, like, you know, like when they were doing books like like Man Bat got his own book for you know a couple issues. I mean, they were doing yeah, a lot of titles two. like that. Yeah, was it two? Okay, thank you, my friend. You know, there, there was a lot of titles like that, and a lot of those books today. You know, you can find a lot of them in, in cheap bins. And a lot of them are worth hunting down because just because for the like the quirky nature of them and just all the different um, themes and, and motifs you know they, they they were they were going for in these various books. Sherlock Holmes is like an example of that. So 
Uh, the Bronze Age is so fun because it's so diverse. Both of the major companies were trying so many different things, and like you mentioned, how uh, Paul you know, bringing one of the Atlas books, you know, which was Martin Goodman's, you know, last gasp at trying to have his own comic company again, and you know, there's the seventies are just so damn fun. I could talk for hours just about comic books of the nineteen seventies. It's just it's it's an invigorating time. Yeah, it's it's. I mean, for me. That was when I started collecting comics. That that was when I totally dove in feet first. And sometimes I question whether my love of it is based purely on quality or if I get washed away with nostalgia sometimes. And I'm sure it's a little bit of both. Yeah, I would say for me, I mean, I I was born in 73, and by the late 70s, I was my parents were buying me comics or I was reading hand-me-down comics from cousins and so forth. And, you know, some of those stories... I, that I, I go back because I'm a treasured pile of books that I got when I was a kid. Some of them still hold up, and some of them you just go, my God, this is terrible. But you still love it because it's part of your childhood. Mm. So there's, there's definitely that combination. Now, we've, we've taken recently, it's, it's a new twist on the show, uh, which we just added in, where we're actually giving a letter grade to the books we bring, uh, with you know C being an average comic book, you know, it's a decent read, but nothing special. And then B or A being above that and D and F being below that. So we, we, we normally uh, defer to the person who brought the book to give his, his grading first, if you're uh, up for it, Adam. Oh, naturally. Um, well, if I'm being objective, uh, I'd probably give it uh, like an A minus B plus. Okay. I was thinking... I'm I'm a, being a little bit more harsh than you. I was thinking C plus B, uh, and I'm thinking you know the art is is good, the storytelling is good, but there's nothing out of the ordinary about it. Uh, and I'm so I'm I'm basically looking at it as being a C, an average book as far as the artwork goes. But I think the story is just so damn fun that it pulls pulls it up to a B. And I must confess, I did read this book, but not recently, so I was not able to give it a, a grade, honestly. I apologize for that. I read That's it okay. many, many years ago. So I have a dim memory of it. But... And either of you have anything more on this, or should we shift over to uh, our Marvel book? Okay, I guess we're going to Marvel. <laughs> That's you, Chris. Adam, no, no last call on the Joker. You're good? Uh, well, I'm just debating whether I should. I didn't really say much about the artwork since you you brought that up, Paul. Um, uh, as I mentioned, it's drawn by Irv Novick, who uh, was kind of a DC bullpenner in the 70s. I, I think he uh, drew a bunch of issues of Justice League. I think that's how what I associate his name with. Uh, he drew most of the issues of this series, not all, but most. I think uh, Jose Luis Garcia Lopez uh, took a hand at some point. They praise be his name. Please go on. Uh, I'm sorry, I I, I missed the. The sound blanked out a little bit a minute oh. ago. What but whenever whenever Jose, Jose Garcia Lopez is mentioned, it, it has to be followed with praise be his name. Uh, okay. <laughs> praise be. Okay, I'll run in Rome. Praise be his name. <laughs> it's, it's, just, it's just a uh, convention that we follow here. Yeah, I like to respect local customs. Uh, I, I just like the way that uh, Novick draws the Joker. You know, that. that uh, impossibly elongated face, that really long, pointy chin, sharp enough to slice a ham with, you know, <laughs> really bespeaks the 70s. I mean, he's trying to 
ape uh, to some extent, uh, the, the Neil Adams school of uh, figure drawing and of, uh, and of uh, you know, evocation of atmosphere. Um, so, but of course, he's uh, he's telling what is uh, arguably a fairly silly story too. So, uh, but but uh, we don't lose the humor, and and I also uh, I'm just a big fan of the cutter logo that they designed for the Joker series. Uh, the Joker, big swirly lettering, the Joker's head inside the O, and uh, the, the four card suits, heart, club, diamond, spade inside the letters. Just uh, makes me think of just a guilty pleasure fun every time I see it. The, the thing I will, okay. will give the artwork in it is the mood of the artwork totally fits the mood of the story. They got the right mm. artist for the story, so I, I'll give credit there, too. All right, I feel I've... Uh, as I said, my piece. All right. Professor Wildpig, the podium is yours. <laughs> <laughs> honored, gentlemen, honored. Uh, I'm, I must admit, I, I was, I've been looking forward to this all week because I've, as Adam mentioned, I've, we, we, we haven't done a, a dedicated episode of the Black, Bat, Black, Batter, Black Panther on uh, CGS, but that, that is coming down the pike at some point. Um, I'll look forward to that. Yes, but um, so I was very excited to talk about this particular issue. Um, issue tw- we're talking about issue twenty-seven of the Black Panther series. Now I should clarify for listeners because there's been multiple volumes of the Black Panther book, so we're not talking about the trippy, fun Jack Kirby Black Panther series from the nineteen seventies. Um, this is the Black Panther Marvel Knights. Well, it started on the Marvel Knights banner in. Uh, 1999 into the early 2000s, and the writer of the entire series was uh, Christopher Priest, who used to be James Owsley, who was an editor and writer at Marvel, then he changed his name. Um, the initial pencilers were uh, Mark Texier and Joe uh, Jusko, but the point when we get to this point in the book, it has a consistent creative team, which is Priest, uh, the penciler Sal Valudo, and the inker Bob Amund, who I've met and have bought, and have bought many page, original pages of artwork from this series, which adorn the walls of my shop. Um, just to give a, a bit of quick background on the series and what, why it, it's always captivated me, uh, from, the, from the very first issue, Priest established that he was approaching the Black Panther from a totally different perspective. And we should mention that in the, in the 70s, uh, the great writer Don McGregor did, did the Jungle Action series where he greatly elaborated on what Lee and Kirby and others established with the Black Panther in the pages of Fantastic Four, and he, he really created a whole world for the Black Panther in Jungle Action. You know, the, the, the political dynamic of Wakanda, the royal family, the intrigue. And then Priest took that foundation, and he, he elaborated on it even more and really gave it an edge for, you know, the, uh, the, the 21st century. And it just the, the, the core of this book is that the Black Panther is not a superhero, he's a king. And it forces the reader to look at the character in a different way because we realize the Black Panther is looking at the Marvel Universe not from the perspective of a hero or an Avenger, but as a monarch of a nation. And the reason I chose this particular issue is because it really emphasizes that. It emphasizes not only his place in the Marvel Universe, but sort of the political infrastructure of that world in that the Panther has you know, diplomatic relations with Namor, with Doctor Doom, with Magneto, at this point is the ruler of, of the soon-to-be-lamented Genosha. 
And um, it, the book goes into the, the various political alliances between these different, you know, countries and kingdoms. And uh, this, in this particular issue, it's actually in the middle of an arc. It's, it's the story is called Storm Stormundrang. Bird would definitely pronounce it better than I would. Uh, a story of love and war. And this is part two in epidemic insanity. And just just to quickly go the plot, um, a child from the uh, Lemurian kingdom of the Deviants, which is a under undersea kingdom that's also was destroyed in the same cataclysm that sunk Atlantis, and it's ruled by um, the Lord G- Gower Murd. Is that how you pronounce his name? Gower Gar Potato yeah. Potato. Yeah. <laughs> Who is often locked in, in in sort of political struggle with Warlord Crow? These are old. These are characters who've been around a while, and a deviant child has, with the mother, has fled to Wakanda seeking asylum, and the deviants want this child back. And the Panther senses that if he does that, the child will be killed, and this basically sparks an international incident which squares off uh, Wakanda and its formidable high-tech military against the Deviants, and it drags in um, the interests of Namor the Submariner, of Latveria, Dr. Doom, uh, Magneto. And what makes this, this, this particular issue and this whole series so riveting is that, it, again, it looks at the Marvel Universe in a different way that I think up to this point really hadn't been done. And it approaches it from, from, a, from a political perspective, from a perspective of how to politics, how to economics, how to various interests all intersect with these characters and, and these various governments and, and you know how are the Avengers involved in that dynamic? You know, how how is the United States government involved in that dynamic? How is the Panther how does he navigate, you know, with all um, between all these different players? And um the book also emphasizes in this particular issue the struggle of trying to be the monarch of this nation. And trying to uphold, because remember, the Black Panther is also a religious figure. He's like the, the symbol, the spiritual symbol of Wakanda, kind of like the way the Japanese emperor is viewed in you know, World War II as like this living, symbolic, spiritual vessel of the nation. And they really emphasize that. And this issue, I think, is also very important because they bring in, in the previous issue, Storm. And Priest, sort of retconning, explains that Storm and Aurora Monroe and T'Challa, the Black Panther, knew each other as children, and in a way they were almost kind of betrothed to each other. And in a previous issue of the X-Men, during this time, the Black Panther's agents call Aurora to come to Wakanda, which he does immediately. And the story uh, explores you know, their dynamic, which, which is new to readers, but Priest is such a great writer that he makes you believe very quickly that there is a long-standing... Not necessarily a relationship, but a, a, a bond between these two characters. And um, there's there's a particular page, which I'm sure you're both familiar with, if, if you've recently read the issue, where most of the page is no word. The art is amazing, and it's the Panther and Aurora embracing and kissing. And then at the very end, he whispers to it. He, he admits that you know he's he's afraid that he's that he essentially he's he's a, a human being. Um, and then the, the Panther's former uh, lover, Monica, who's from the Jungle Action series, you know, she kind of sees it, you know, from the background. And the pacing in this book, it captures both this, this personal drama of T'Challa trying to hold on to his humanity and Storm is warning, like, you know, don't become like Magneto. Don't let yourself be consumed by, what you, by your burdens. And then Priest is balancing that with this international intrigue that's going on between Wakanda, the Deviants, Atlantis, Latveria. Um, 
in the hands of a lesser writer, this whole thing would implode and it just it would not work. But in the hands of Priest, who I think is one of the most overlooked, underrated writers in in modern comics scripting, um, I, I don't think it really gets it gets better than this. If, you, if you're talking about superhero comics, you're talking about Marvel comics. This this is cream of the crop, especially because Priest, unlike lesser writers, he brings in all the Panthers history, the Marvel history. He doesn't change anything. He simply uses it as a foundation, then takes it in a different direction that you weren't necessarily expecting. So if you're a lover of Marvel history, this is a series that you have to read because it's so rich in referring to all of that and, 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 and the relationship the Panther has with the Fantastic Four, with Captain America, with the Avengers – with these other monarchs like Namor or Dr. Doom. Um, it, it, it's a masterful issue. Uh, granted, if you haven't read the whole series, you, you kind of plunge in the middle of the story when you read it, but I think his writing is so effective that you, you, you get a sense pretty quickly of, of, of what's going on here. I've prattled on enough there, gentlemen. I'll allow you to interject. I couldn't agree with you more. I have always found the Black Panther to be kind of a fascinating character, and sadly, I haven't read everything. And it's not that he's got such a huge body of work that I can't read it all. I, I need to sit down and, and pull some of those issues and read some more, uh, particularly this series. Having sat and read this issue in preparation for today, uh, I feel like I've been missing out on something. And this is one where we jumped in in the middle. Uh, you picked right. Chapter 2. Uh, so it's already going on when I jumped in, but I didn't feel lost, even though the story was exceptionally complex as far as the political ramifications of what was going on and the motivations of the respective characters and how they uh, interact and all. Uh, but I still felt that it was written very, very well to keep me kind of moving along with the story and not feeling that I'm getting lost and wiped away by it. Uh I, I, I think you pretty much hit it on the money. I've, like I said, I've always found the character to be fascinating because I always enjoyed the fact that they made Wakanda a traditional, if not stereotypical, African nation and stereotypical not necessarily in a good way, but balanced that by having them be more scientifically advanced than the rest of the world. Uh, oh, and that I, goes back to the, his first appearance in Fantastic Four in yes. 52 and 53, where... Lee and Kirby established that, and you're right, they had a lot of the, the, like, the stereotypical motifs, but it was also this high-tech kingdom that had never been conquered, never enslaved, and was, you know, and, and Priest elaborates on this, that is, that is also, it's a world power. Um, so I, I, I couldn't agree more. Please, I'm sorry to interject. No, no, not at all. I, that's, that's the whole idea of the show. We do interject when we have <laughs> ideas that come to us. But, uh, yeah, it, it's, it's almost like they're a reluctant world power. They have the ability possibly to be the world power, but they would rather just live in seclusion and be on their own and not interact with the rest of the world if they can. And that's why their motifs and styles are kind of outdated. But again, their technology is so advanced that they could kind of pretty much do what they want. Uh, you know, I have to remember because they have, I'm sorry, they have the vibranium mountain there. So they're mm -hmm. always conscious about protecting that so that technology doesn't fall in the hands of other countries. Yes. Yes, absolutely. And that's the whole origin of Claw, which they even touched on in this issue. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, and, and like I said, I've, I've, found the, I've always found the character to be fascinating. And I thought this story was terrific and now i'm gonna to have to read the rest of it because it, it really pulled me in and, and it also uh 
did a good job for Marvel Comics because it also made me more interested in reading what was going on in Namor's series at the time. So if if you were reading this off the stands, that not only are they uh, getting you you know with a very high quality book to begin with, but they're also giving you reason to want to seek out other ones, which is absolutely got to be the company line. The artwork is absolutely gorgeous. It's just beautiful. Uh, I'm trying to remember now. I, we Scott Gardner and I did a book, uh, an all, a, a Justice Society book, the, a couple of weeks ago. And I'm thinking it's the same art team. And it, and we were raving about Salvaluto how beautiful. Saludo and Almonds. Yeah. yeah. We were raving about the Yeah, I don't know if Salvaluto still works. I haven't seen him do anything lately. But And this is the first time when I, when I was reading this series, as it was coming out, that I was exposed to his work. And his his team, teaming up with Almond, who I've met a couple times at shows, I mean, it, I think it's, it's breathtaking. I mean, that page where he and Storm have their heart-to-heart, that's a masterful sequential storytelling. Um, and most of it, there's no dialogue. Um, and that's not easy to do. So. Yeah, definitely. I, 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 I almost sense like a, a, it's not a copy of, but in its own way, it, it reminds me a lot of George Perez's artwork. It, it's not that it mirrors it, see that, sure. but, but the storytelling ability and just some of the line work, even though it doesn't look, you know, like you'd never mistake it for Perez, but it has a similar quality to it in its own way. Uh, I don't know if that makes total sense, as I say it. But no, no, I, 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 would, I would agree with that. I would agree with that. Uh, but I, I, I just, like I said, I, I thank you for picking this book because I had never read it and I was, I really, really enjoyed reading it. Sir, I'm thrilled to hear that. Another convert. Excellent. It's not so much a convert, because as I said, I always have had a, uh, a a certain affinity for the Black Panther character. I've always enjoyed his character. Uh, and it's just a matter of I had never gotten to this one. And you came over and you just placed it down in my lap for me, and I appreciate it. Of course. And the one thing I'll say to you going forward is, unfortunately, Marvel only traded the first two arcs of this series and in their continuity now, this series doesn't exist anymore. Um, they totally wiped that out of continuity. So that's the sad part. The positive part is the back issues are cheap, and you know you can find them. I mean, I, I, I have a whole run of them in my my bins. I always make sure I have the series intact in my my fifty cent bins. Really? Um, so you're able to hunt them down, but it's, it's a shame that that they they've not. I don't think they've given this series to do or in words I think it's a critical recognition that it really deserved well if you have it in your store in your 50 cent bins if I make it to your store as I hope to I will be pulling an entire run of it and purchasing it from you most of them are there sir uh, well yeah, that's I a few uh, holes in my own run that need to be filled too uh, in, uh, you haven't you didn't need to convert me to this series Chris because I was already among the oh, fire. Yeah. Uh, but uh, there are. I hadn't gotten to issue number twenty-seven yet because uh, I'm missing a couple of issues uh, earlier than that, and I do be uh, later than their publication date. Um, uh, so I, I had never actually read this issue before. As you said, it, it does put us down right in the middle of a storyline. But uh, well, thanks to the uh, running uh, exposition, uh, the first-person monologue of Everett K. Ross, uh, whitest white man in the world, uh, <laughs> we were caught up pretty nicely. 
And, you know, I, I definitely feel several of the things you were saying about uh, Priest's work here, Chris. So he's got an excellent ear for characterization. I love the interplay between uh, the monarchs of the Marvel Universe here, Doom, Namor, and T'Challa. And I'm sorry that we don't get to hear Magneto uh, chime in, too, in this issue, though I understand he will show up in issue number 28. Yes. And uh, the, the, you know, they're, characterized, you know, they're characterized perfectly, and it's characterization informed by... Uh, Solid knowledge of Marvel history, which is another point that you made, Chris, and uh, Priest is certainly demonstrating his uh, command of that. I mean, he's making reference to things like uh, Lord Gower's uh, failed anti-mind scheme from uh, John Ostrander's Heroes for Hire series in the late 90s. Yep. Namor drops a mention of the last time Wakanda and Atlantis nearly uh, came to blows in The Defenders in the early 80s. Yep. Priest actually uses Vibraxis. You know, the, the sonically powered uh, Wakandan <laughs> youth from the Fantastic Force, one of, uh, in this reviewer's humble estimation, uh, the worst superhero teen series Marvel has ever published. But recently uh, he's got the Wakandan connection, and Priest, showing his dedication to the uh, full utilization of the Panthers' history, even finds a way to make him work in this book. <laughs> um, and he, he doesn't get any lines of dialogue in this particular issue, but I'm, I'm all the more curious to see what uh, Priest does with him elsewhere. So, yes, there's some great stuff going on here. Um, uh, Chris, could you answer a question for me? I'll try. Uh, what, uh, the, this Queen Divine Justice character, can you give us some background on her? I'm pretty she sure she is a is, creation. Yes, she is, and, and, and I love the, the voice that he gives her. She is a character who turns out to be, if I remember correctly, it's been a while, but she is linked to like the Wakandan royal house. And she was living in, she was living in um, an urban center. I want to say New York City, but don't quote me on that. I have to go back to that particular issue. And for, in, in, for, in, for various circumstances, she's brought back to Wakanda. And she, and, and cause she as, you, as you probably noted, at one point Storm says, like, you don't, she basically says, like, she calls a princess, and then she says, you know, she says, why do you keep calling me? She says, if you do not, if you do not know, that is not my place to tell you. Right, right. So she's a character who's going to appear throughout the rest of the series. And what's great about her character, Ross serves the same function, and Ross is a brilliant uh, conception as far as I'm concerned. They, they are basically us being thrust into this incredible world. And they're, they're, they're our voice, the reader. They're speaking for us and, and reacting as we would with all these wacky things. I mean, if you read the first issue of Black Panther, it starts with Ross saying, you know, I have no pants. Um, you know, there's... there's the priest used... The devil took them. That's right. I think it was Methodist, if I remember correctly. And, um, oh, yeah, but priest, he says the devil took my pants. Right, that's right. Thank you, sir. And, um, you know, Priest, of course, uses humor and often very dark, you know, acerbic humor throughout this series. And, and Ross serves, because the Black Panther often plays a very straight character and that he is he is deep he's brooding he's he's deeply ingrained with the notion that i am a king and i am responsible for this nation and ross and storm even mentions to him you know you're not going to be like magneto because you have ross and and i it, i don't think the book would work as well if, if ross wasn't in it and uh he's he's in the whole series so huh. it, it's let me I'll let me your question sir I got a very simple question oh, for you. Uh, mm-hmm. at, at the very first panel, they make mention of uh, Deviant Lemuria being known as the City of Toads. 
Is that any way linked to the Kirby frogs from the from his series? I think Adam would be better versed in answer that question. I mean, I would say no, but Adam, what do you think? Kirby frogs? Do you, do you remember? In, to that issue of the Incre- Incredible Hulk, the Silver Age, the Toad Men. Oh, oh no, 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 no. Men. That's that's oh, actually no, no, not no. what I'm thinking of. In in the oh, black in the Black Panther series from the early 70s that Kirby did, or actually from oh, mid 70s. Oh, Kirby's. Okay. He had he had those those okay. transporting like the frogs that he could use to transport to places. And I don't know why, but I was thinking maybe they came from Lemuria, but I'm not sure. I don't think so, but all I'll, all I'll say there is, Paul, strap in, because Priest is so brilliant in this series. Later on in the series, he actually takes the Kirby concepts, and he folds them into his series. And that, that, like that toad you're talking about will show up. Because the thing about the Kirby series was, that's when Kirby returned to Marvel in the late 70s. And they let him write and edit his own books. And when he, like he, that's when he did The Eternals. That's when he did um, his run on Captain America and the Falcon, for example. Mm-hmm. Devil Dinosaur. And oh, yeah, Devil Dinosaur. He basically he ignored all continuity when he was writing his books. So his Black Panther series is trippy, fun, but it's not really rooted in any Marvel continuity. Priest will take, like, you were, like Adam was acknowledged before about Vibraxis, Priest will take the, the Kirby continuity. So, you'll see. <laughs> yeah, well, that's that's the thing about all of Kirby's solo work, is I always found it to be enormously fun, enormously imaginative, but almost without uh, any editorial constraints. Uh, so it it. it while while it was tremendous con- conceptually, sometimes he just would go totally off the board. Uh, and and he needs somebody to reel and, him back in once in a while. Well, I, I I would agree with that, and that's and that's and I, I'm fine with that because that's curved unleashed, and it's 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 really fun. But you're right; it, it's a contrast when you can tell that when Lee was editing what he was doing. Yeah, when when, um, and when I yeah, love Lee, I love both love both approaches. Yes, I do too. Uh, but but I I often found the Lee Kirby books to be a nice easy, pleasant read, and, and equally imaginative in its own way. Whereas the Kirby books sometimes were almost a challenge to read because he would just go so far afield with some of his concepts that you, you had to actually sit down and, and think about it just to, to kind of figure out what the heck he was trying to tell you. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Brother Murdo, any, any other comments you might have? Um... Well, I will say this. Um, I, I really enjoyed this read. Um, it's a good issue of a fine series. Um, uh, you were d- d- describing to me, I mean, the first time I told you uh, that uh, uh, you were going to be responsible for reviewing a Marvel comic for this episode, and you immediately thought of this issue, and you ran and got your uh, copy of the, uh, was it a library-bound edition? of? The- I, I, have, I have the whole series bound in two volumes, yeah. Mm-hmm. All right, so you went down into your study and retrieved it, and sh- uh, concentrated immediately upon that one page near the end, page 17, with a nearly wordless page, and uh, talked about the emotional intensity and the great visual storytelling of that. That this, well, you were saying all kinds of good things about this issue, as you have uh, done so again in, in this episode. But I think the one thing you maybe oversold to me was that page, 
mean, I okay. certainly see what you mean about the, the powerful visual storytelling, but uh, when the Black Panther admits at the end, well, the bottom of that page, that he doesn't know everything and he's afraid, um, it would have been a little more powerful and poignant, I think, if Storm hadn't told him that little story about Magneto and how T'Challa is in danger of repeating Magneto's mistakes and going down the same dark path. Uh, so that when T'Challa, a couple of pages later, says the things that he says, it kind of sounds like he's just parroting what Storm said. He's just, uh, you know, uh, taking the lines that Storm has fed him. It would have been better, I think, if he had just spontaneously come forth with those lines. Um, but, yeah, other than that, uh, this issue uh, was as good as advertised. I appreciate that, sir. And I, I, I can, I, actually, I've never thought of it that way, but I, I can totally see that point. And... It, considering pre-sophistication, nor would it surprise me if, if perhaps that was even his intent. I, I don't know, but hmm. um, uh, certainly that's feasible. Um, so you think that priest wants us to understand that the Black Panther is, in fact, just telling Storm what she wants to hear? See, uh, the way I'm looking at it is in the public, he has to have this supreme confidence about everything he's doing. And you know, he, he can't show any weakness at all. And when she saw him in that light, that's why she felt the need to say, hey, don't let yourself get taken away with this the way Magneto did. But in private, he cares about her so much that he could admit that he doesn't have the confidence that he's showing in public. That's the way I, I interpreted it. And to that, what, what I like about it is that they're whispering. Um, so you know, he can't be heard by, I mean, Monica is there and Ross and perhaps other subjects of his kingdom. And I, I, I love that just that approach with, with the lettering. It's, it's a simple little thing, but it, 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 it really speaks to me and says so much about what's going on in that scene. Um, and, and, you know, the Monica character, the Monica character is vitally important in the Black Panther's history. You just get a little bit with her in, in this story, and also she's commenting on the, the, see the, woman, the, the dead woman in that sort of that, that uh, levitating coffin. That's another former lover of T'Challa, who was uh, associated with Ross, who, who was explored earlier in the series. Murray probably knows what I'm talking about there. Um, I think so. She's one of the yeah. Dora Milaje? No, no. This is, this is a, the white woman who, 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 was, who was dead, and Monica and the Panther are talking about her. Um, oh, oh, yes. Uh, yeah. Nikki Adams, was that her name? That's right. Nikki, that was her name. Thank you. I forgot her first name. Um, they explore early in the series that she was like a college sweetheart of T'Challa. Um, and then she comes back as a diplomat who's actually affiliated with Ross. So this, this is a... This is a the one challenge of, of, of taking an issue like this, like you guys mentioned, it, it is in the middle of things. And I think it's a testament to pre-skill that you, you both, you know, enjoyed it so thoroughly. This is a series where you have to read the whole series mm -hmm. because everything is, is tightly interlocked um, throughout. And again, if you're a fan of Marvel history, this this series is a bonanza. I mean, it's as Murd said. I mean, I mean, I, I, you don't see this in Marvel comics anymore. They have, they have the little little boxes referring to old issues. Because their continuity is, is in many ways so out of whack now, but you know, Priest is he mimes throughout this this series in terms of. Uh, Chris, uh, maybe you could give me a little bit. I'm not really familiar with uh, the uh, adopted brother of T'Challa, White Wolf. He is a creation of Priest in the series, and what's what's nice about this issue, 
is that they, they go into, I think it's this issue, they go into his origin a little bit, correct? Yeah, a little um, bit. They talk about... Yeah, they do. Yeah, yeah, and basically what he, you know, he's this adopted white guy who, as is noted in the issue, has been kind of pushed aside when, when King T'Chaka finally has a biological son, so he has a mayor to the throne. And basically, he, he becomes like the spy master and the secret police chief of Wakanda. And like his, his, his unit wears those white panther uniforms. And he's, he's, he's the guy who does all the dirty work. Mm-hmm. And he's, he's totally dedicated to protecting Wakanda. But he's dedicated in that way like you know, a secret policeman is. Like he, he will go to any lengths, including even perhaps setting up, as we can see in this issue, his own uh, stepbrother to protect Wakanda's interests as he sees them. Um, and he, he's a major character throughout the, title, the whole title. Did, has he survived beyond the title? So, no, because this whole title has been wiped out. So every, everything, the only part of this title that survives is when they relo- they ended this series, and they, they, they then pre-submitted a book called Crew, which is kind of a sequel to it. And then they relaunched the Black Panther with and they gave it, it – this is when Marvel was flirting with, like, you know, entertainment writers. And they brought in a writer named Reginald Hudson. Yeah, well, that was later. And he wrote what I thought – yes, it was after this series. And he wrote what I thought was a very flat, dull interpretation of the Panther. This series didn't exist anymore. No, um, no. They had H- Ross H- in it, but, but – go ahead, I'm sorry. I was going to say, Hudlin's series I thought started out well and then just kind of drifted off. It seemed to lose yeah, its I mean, focus I mean, as it went on. To me, he didn't... Coming on the heels of this, I felt like I was going from, you know... <laughs> again, reading, you know, a, a master's work to reading the work of, you know, some... Someone like a pretender. It, it just... It, it, it fell flat very quickly for me. And I, granted, I, I'm, I'm, I'm biased in that sense, but... I just felt he didn't give the Panther any kind of distinctive voice. I felt it was very, just kind of whole hum Black Panther. Um, and all the only thing that he kept was, I and mean, they continued to pursue this because he later married Storm in the Marvel Universe. That's all based on what Priest established here. But, you know, these stories, if you're a continuity buff, these stories don't exist anymore mm. in that sense. Yeah, see, I, I had heard uh, read rumors in the fan press around the time that the series started, which would be around 2005 or six, I guess, uh, that it would invalidate uh, much of Priest's run, and so I refused to support it for that reason. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I read the first issue, which John Romita Jr. penciled. It was okay. But then I, by the time I got to issue two, I was like, oh, this is, this is junk. You know, this is... So, what I, that's what I would say about that. that series is I think he was more focused on Wakanda than he was on the Panther himself. It, it didn't. I'll have, to, I'll have to. I'll have to bow to you there because I didn't read enough of it to even have. I only. I only stuck with it for maybe two or three issues, and I was just totally turned off by it. Right. No, I, I can understand um, that, and and now that I'm being exposed to this, I could understand it even more. Uh, but it see it seemed like he, you know, he was trying to create the mythology of the, you know, we've never been defeated, and uh, which was a heavy emphasis in the first issue. Yeah. Yeah, like that. Um, that seemed to be more his focus than actually giving the Panther any depth. I mean, when you, when you look at the use of the Black Panther and Jonathan Hickman's New Avengers, I think that's very much rooted in, in Priest's interpretation of the Black Panther. 
and I, I really am enjoying how he's writing the Panther Bear. We also, I, as I mentioned before, if you're into the Black Panther, you have to read the Jungle Action stories. Marvel has collected them in a Marvel Masterworks hardcover, mm-hmm. um, which is still available, and it's the whole Jungle Action run, and Priest really uses that jungle action. I mean, Don McGregor was a really good, I mean, he's still, he's still active, but he's a really good writer, and his 70s work was very sophisticated for the time. And the jungle action story, I read for the first time, only, you know, maybe two or three years ago, it's the foundation for everything Priest does. And, and if Priest I remember correctly, that was, uh, the art on that was Rich Buckler, wasn't it? He was an, uh, he did some of the art for it. Um, some of the artist, Billy Graham, who unfortunately has passed away, who was one? Who was an, an, uh, an early African American artist in comics in the Bronze Age, who was a close friend of McGregor's. So I met Don McGregor at a New York Comic Con a few years ago, and, and I, it was a tr- thrill for me because I talked to him at length about jungle action, mm. and he talked a bit about his relationship with Billy Graham. Um, <clears throat> again, I'm talking about the televangelist and talking about the comic book artist <laughs> here. And, um, he uh, that that series. What I would recommend to anyone who really wants to the Black Panther. You read the, the early Kirby appearance in Fantastic Four. You read Jungle Action, and then you read this. Um, and also, Don McGregor did two bit Marvel brought him back in the 80s, and he did two more Black Panther stories. One on Marvel Comics Presents, which is drawn by Gene Colan, so that should be enough right there. And then he did one, a, a miniseries. Oh, I, just, I just forgot the name of it. I have it. It's like a prestige form. I have it downstairs in my library. Um where uh, I think it's called Boris him like in his relationship with Monica and and it goes and, and Priest refers to all these stories in this series. So he, he, he refers to the entire continuity. And he brings it all together, which is I think what further what makes the series frankly amazing because he really pulls off something incredible here. Um, considering all all that he was playing with from, from the Marvel Universe and from the Black Panther's own history. And like you say, he, did, he didn't get me passion at all. I'm just going on and on here. No, I, I, and I'm enjoying listening to it, to be honest with you. That's why I'm not <laughs> – I'm, I'm, I, I, I feel bad every time I interrupt you because I'm enjoying just your take on it. Uh, but he, like you say, he, he, didn't, uh, he didn't retcon it. He just used it, which is uh, novel because so many people feel the need yeah. to retcon. I agree. Brother Murdo, any other thoughts on this? I don't believe so. All right. Uh, Chris, you want to give us a grade? Oh, it's an A. <laughs> I kind of thought you might go there. Yeah. Having only read this issue of the run, I'm backing you up, and I think it's an A as well. Even without having read the story ent- uh, leading up to it or where it goes to, I just sat down with it, and I was immediately pulled in by both the story and the artwork. So I'm, I'm ready, right on board with you with giving it an A. Yeah, I'll be a little more conservative and give it an A-. minus. Uh, you're, far, you're a harsh grader. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, except when we're talking about the Joker. Uh, I'm glad you guys really enjoyed it. Um, it's this, this is the series that that this is my favorite. I mean, this is my favorite Marvel series. That's beginning has an end. That speaks volumes. Um, yeah, and and knowing you know, having listened to you on on CGS and knowing you know your your love of Marvel in general, to say that this is the, your favorite of all of it, 
like I said, it speaks volumes. I appreciate that, sir. I got to thank you guys very, very much for coming on with me. Uh, as as a uh, regular listener of your show, uh, and and somebody who enjoys listening to your show very much, uh, it, it almost made me feel like I was on your show instead of the other way around, having you two guys on here. And uh, I, I enjoyed that feeling, and I enjoyed the conversation. Oh, Paul, thanks for having us on. It was, I'm, I'm again, I'm always humbled and honored to to have an opportunity to talk about the comic book medium of this with you know with people who are just as invested in it, you know, emotionally as I am. And it's, it's always a treat. The honor is all ours, Paul. Thank you very much for uh, giving us this additional forum to chat. Well, like I said, thank you for coming on. And uh, I'm hoping you guys enjoyed it as much as I did. And uh, maybe some, absolutely somewhere down the road in a little while, we'll do it again. Sir, I'd be happy to. In the me- I, love, I love your whole format, just talking back issues. I love that. So, yeah, that's that's well. It's I personally, and you know, it's not unique to me, but I personally uh, just don't enjoy the new stuff that's coming out to the extent that I enjoy the old stuff. It's not that I don't like the new stuff. I find series that I enjoy very much, but when I can grab a series like this and just wrap myself in it, I. I there's nothing quite like it, uh, so that's the no, show. The show is made for somebody like me. I can I can appreciate that uh, sentiment. Uh, are you reading the current Daredevil series? I have fallen behind on it. I started reading it okay. and uh, I enjoy it. I, I'm I'm I'll tell you, of the current Marvel books. I have fallen behind on that, but I enjoy that. I'm enjoying all new X Men, and I'm enjoying Superior Spider Man. Yeah, I was gonna. I, I'm enjoying Superior Spider-Man. I'm getting a little tired of Spider-Man being a dick, but um, it's 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 a well-done series. But I, I mentioned Daredevil and also All New X-Men as well because if you really love the old stuff and the feel of it, I think both those titles, especially Daredevil, just visually and the tone, really capture a lot of the, the old flavor without compromising continuity and 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 what's going on in the present day. So those are series I recommend highly. Yeah, the only the only thing about Spider-Man being a dick that I, you know, I, I, I agree with you, but every time it happens, I think, boy, when Peter Parker comes back, this is just going to be all the more that's piled on that he's got to deal with, and I'm looking <laughs> to that. And sometimes I get a kick out of just the ridiculous things, you know, he's sitting there with Mary Jane, and she starts talking, and he's like, shut up, woman! It's like, you know, I, I don't know, I just, you know, the, the, the Otto Octavius coming out of him, just find, I find that amusing very often. I agree. No, I'm enjoying the series. I'm just, I'm just, I think I'm getting ready for, uh, for the changeover. Well, once he gave Spider-Man minions, I was like, all right. Well, he's, he's but becoming it, more and more Doc Ock-like, which is yeah, yeah. kind of cool to, to see. And again, but, uh, there's going to be all sorts know, I, of ramifications to that. You're absolutely right. And Slot is a great writer and, and I've enjoyed what he's done with that. And that's, you know, that's like if people haven't read his She-Hulk run. You got to go and seek that out. Oh so. yes, yeah, I've read that. That was that was a lot of fun. That was just yeah. pure and simple fun. What well, has Howard the Duck in it? Come on. <laughs> oh, nothing quite like the Steve Gerber Howard the Duck though. Uh, I, no one can write it as well as Gerber. I agree. Sorry, gentlemen, I'm starting to go on tangents. It's just it's comics. Yeah, no, that's that's that is part of uh, part of the beauty of this show is it's very tangent friendly. <laughs> Excellent. Gentlemen, I'm going to hit the hay. All Thank right. you so much for having me on. Uh, Murd, I'll be talking to you on Monday much. night. Oh, yes. 
can hardly wait. You guys want to, uh, before you before you say goodbye, you want to plug anything that you have coming up on CGS for listeners who may not already subscribe to it to entice them? Well, recently we revived our uh, Book of the Month Club uh, series of uh, of episodes in which we spotlight uh, trades of uh, noteworthy or seminal comics material. Uh, we've uh, resurrected this format, which has been well, defunct on CGS for a couple of years now, and we've uh, brought it back in a big way with the first volume of Neil Gaiman's Sandman. So that's one of the liveliest and most enriching discussions we've had on the show for a little while, I think. Oh, we have a lot of fun, yeah. And uh, we uh, just recently recorded our uh, Best of 2013 uh, nominations episode, where uh, all of us on the show, the, the hosts, uh, uh, gave our uh, nominations for uh, the best comics and creators uh, of 2013 in a number of different categories. And we invited the listeners to participate in the nominations process as well. And coming up in a couple of weeks, uh, well, we're going to throw the voting open to any, any and all, um, anyone who wants to participate. Uh, to determine who was going to uh, receive the uh, dubious honor of being voted uh, Comic Geek Speaks uh, Best of 2013. For what it's worth, just before we started recording, I was sitting here listening to your nomination show. That was a lot of fun to record. And that's all all kudos to Adam. He's the guy who who was determined to uh, keep that uh, topic going, that that, that format. It was a lot of fun to participate in. Thank you, my friend. No, no, it's my, my pleasure. I, I enjoyed the the discussions that it engendered as much as anybody. And the other thing I'd mention is that we're going to be starting a whole new line of um, spotlight episodes this year. We just finished up X Men and Avengers, and probably probably sometime this in February we'll be starting. We're going to be, do, we're going to be doing multiple episodes on the Fantastic Four. Um, we're going to go very heavy into the whole history of the team. Um, the Silver Age alone will probably take two episodes. Um, that talk about Lee and Kirby, that's, I can't wait for that. And we're also going to be celebrating the 50th anniversary of Daredevil and spotlighting his history as well this year. Excellent. So, those, those happen to be my personal favorite, the spotlight episodes. Well, we, we, we love doing them. So it's, uh, it's a lot of fun. So that, you, you can look forward to that in the months to come as well. Cool. Very cool. All right, guys, thanks again. I really appreciate it, and uh, I guess we'll be in touch. Thanks a lot, Paul. I'll be happy to do this again. And Brother Adam, I will talk to you soon, sir. Oh, yes, very soon. Pleasant dreams in the meanwhile, sir. (laughs) You too, my friend. Take care, guys. Thanks. Bye-bye. Take it easy. Bye, Chris. Bye, Paul. Take care, Adam. Good night. Thank you so much for listening to our show, and we hope you'll join us each and every week for more good old-fashioned comic book back-issue awesomeness. You can contact Back to the Bins to leave feedback, comments, questions, suggestions, and criticisms via email at backtothebins at gmail.com or by visiting the Two True Freaks section of www.forumforgeeks.com. Back to the Bins is produced in association with the Two True Freaks podcast, which you may find at www.twotruefreaks.com and is a registered trademark of DiManzocore of Milan, Italy. All rights reserved. Back to the Bins is a proud member of both the League of Comic Book Podcasts, which you may find at comicbooknoise.com league, and also the Comics Podcast Network, which you may find at comicspodcasts.com. Take a moment to stop by their respective sites and support their other fine podcasts, won't you? 
Thanks, and we'll see you next week.